Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today, Anthony Peak. First of all, welcome to the podcast. It's a, a real treat to have you here. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing incredibly well. Wonderful talking to you, Frank, up there in beautiful Lancashire. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, che- cheering me up on a very rainy and sort of dull day. <laughs> so thanks. It's for, very thanks similar for... down here. It's very similar down here in West Sussex as well. Yeah, at least it's not blowing an absolute gale and threatening to blow the house down like it has been over the last couple of days. Eh? Absolutely. So if you don't mind, um, first of all, just before we get into anything else, uh, can you just give a little bit of a, a background to, to your work for the listeners who might not be familiar with what you do? Just a little yeah. rundown of the sort of key focus of your, your work over the years would be amazing if possible. Yeah, no, very, very quickly then. Uh, born and brought up on Wirral. Um moved down, moved away to university back in the early 1970s, um, have had a very long interest in extraordinary human experiences, uh, specifically an interest from my teenage years in UFOs and and ghosts and hauntings. Um, Went to university, did a degree in sociology and a degree in history, um, I'm focused in on that, onto the sociology of religion, the sociology of belief, the sociology of language. So I very much take a very academic approach to this because I then did, went on and I did postgrad at the London School of Economics um, in, in, in various other subjects as well. But I've always been very interested in the phenomenon of abductions and what this tells us about the nature of consciousness, the nature of the universe. And indeed, many for many, many years, I, I, I used to read Flying Saucer Review, um, went on quite a few interesting treks when I lived down in London, up to um, Rendlesham and various other places as well. So I've been very involved in, in it for many, many years. But um, I had a very much a career in business, uh, worked for, AV, uh, for airlines and various other companies over the years. But I'd always wanted to write. I'd always had this enthusiasm that I really wished to write a book. And fortunately, in, 90, in the early noughties, um, I, I was sufficiently financially stable, having done a, a very useful business contract, that my wife agreed that I'd take a year out and I'd write a book. Um, and as they say, is the rest is history, because here we are now, what, uh, 18 years later, and I'm just finishing off now my 13th book. Um, just to stress, I am not self-published. Um, publishers pay me to write the books. I get an advance and everything else as well, which does mean that my books get everywhere. So if anybody's interested in my books, that you can you can go into your local library and find them. Um, also, my books are now in, I have at least one book in every major and most minor European languages as well. Uh, and the books seem to be telling selling particularly well over in the USA and Canada and across the English-speaking world as well. So generally, but my approach is always starting with the science. Um, I always start with the science. I don't make extraordinary claims because I'm very much a follower of a guy called Marcello Trui, uh, who I think was Danish. Sounds Italian, but he was of uh, Italian origin, but I think he was Danish. And he came up with a statement which, which said extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. 
And this has always been my philosophy. If you read my books, you will find everything I say in there is referenced back to academic papers. So I turn around and I say to my readers, you come to your own conclusions on these. This is what I'm interpreting, but don't take my word for it. And indeed, if you think there are things I'm saying that are wrong, please contact me and we can debate and discuss it. So that's very much my approach. Yeah, brilliant. And I'll I'll leave some links in the description to this episode as well, to your uh, various social media, your website and YouTube, which is a great way for folks to check out um, what you've you've been up to. Um, so there's so much we can get into uh, with the various kind of areas that you've looked at um, in, in your work. But let's start off with something kind of about UFOs, since obviously this is a UFO podcast after all. Um, and there is a lot of talk in, in the world of UFOs that UFOs may kind of originate from outside of our perceivable reality. Um, long before I was interested in UFOs, I remember reading Huxley's Doors of Perception and exploring those concepts of how we only experience you know, a small slice of reality. Um, what, what's your take on where ufos might originate from at, at least in part and mm. do you think there's some links there with ufos and, and these parts of reality that are outside of our perception very strongly um around about six or seven years ago ago i wrote a book called opening the doors of perception which was an updating of huxley's 1954 book and in this um i i dis i discuss the way in which human perception rather like Huxley argued, as indeed did um, his predecessors, people like uh, Henri Bergson, argue that the human brain acts as an attenuator. It's there to take information out, not put information in. In other words, it is there in order to allow us to function effectively within whatever this reality mean is that we exist within. Um, so com coming from that conclusion and coming from that evidence and then moving on to the simple fact that we know that 99.9999999996 of the atom is empty space. And indeed, what is actually made of so-called physical things are quarks and electrons, both of whom are point particles, which have no extension in space. You very quickly come to the conclusion that what we think is physical reality is not physical at all. The physicality that we feel around us is basically just because of electrostatic re repulsion. See, the only reason you don't fall through the chair you're sitting through is because of electrostatic repulsion with the electrons at the edge of each of the atoms. Um, if that did not exist, you would fall through everything. You, nothing would be solid. Also, we have to conclude it's something else I call electromagnetic um, uh, chauvinism. We believe that the visual world that is presented to us by our senses and by our eyes is a one-to-one -one relationship between what is externally out there and what is inside our heads. And that is patently ridiculous. And indeed, people who believe that are known in, by perception scientists as being naive realists, because there is no one-to-one -one relationship. Whatever is out there, it is nothing like what our senses tell us it is. Um, I came up a few years ago with an analogy about this, and I said, imagine the electromagnetic spectrum. That is, we see the very small part of visible light, but the electromagnetic spectrum is everything that is light effectively and uh, imagine that you know very high wavelengths are radio waves and very very low wavelengths very fast wavelengths i should say are gamma rays and i say and right in the middle of that is the visual spectrum light that we see and i said imagine a scenario that the um the electromagnetic spectrum is the river mississippi 
starts in a small lake in Minnesota, winds its way down to the center of the states and comes out in the Gulf of Mexico. The world we think is the visual world that is everything that's supposedly out there is uh, one and a half inches, about eight miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. That tells us exactly the true nature of reality. So there's two examples I've given here is the physicality of the universe, which is an illusion. Also the, the, the visual world and indeed all our senses are exactly the same. We're very restricted in what we do. So the question is, there's an awful lot of stuff out there that we don't know. We know that 96% of the universe is missing. We glibly call what's missing um, dark energy and dark matter. The reason we call it dark is because we don't know what it is. It doesn't mean that it is literally dark. We just don't know what it is. So therefore, when um, people like Brian Cox glibly stand up and make these fantastic statements that we we know everything, I'm reminded of the statement made by Mitchelson of the Mitchelson-Morley experiment, and I think in 1896, when he turned around and he said, we so know so much about the science now and physics that physicists in the future will only be calculating to the sixth decimal point because that's all physicists will have to do. Whereas the point of reality is, uh, four years later, um, uh, a German academic called Max Planck stood up at the in Berlin in December 1900 and stated that the only way he could explain something called the electromagnetic, uh, the uh, the, yeah, the electromagnetic catastrophe was to come up with uh, black body radiation, was to come up with the idea that energy came in quanta, that is in bits or parts, and everything changed. Suddenly, five years later, Einstein comes up with his great year with his three papers, and suddenly the quantum world is there. Suddenly we have relativity and everything else as well, and suddenly the world changes. I believe that the present science is in the same position. We have painted ourselves into a corner rather like one of those Heath Robinson paintings, you know, where everything is just cat-handed and awkward and we keep painting ourselves further and further into corners of belief it's not science anymore it's scientism so therefore we ha everything has to full be fulfilled by the materialist reductionist model and if it doesn't fit in with the materialist reductionist model it's just ignored so any anomalous experiences that people have ufo encounters entity encounters all these are just glibly dismissed purely and simply because we can't explain them and I always find this fascinating that um, the materialist reductionists will explain that if two people see a UFO together or an entity, it's a folie deux. No, if one person does it, it's an hallucination. Checkbox. We don't know what hallucinations are, but we call them hallucinations. I call it the labeling theory of science. Then if two people see a UFO uh, or an entity, it's called a folie deux. Another nice term, French, sounds very scientific, sounds very cool. Basically, what they're talking about there is it's two people who are sharing an hallucination. They explain this in some kind of wonderful way that there's some form of telepathy taking place between these people, because how else can two people share an hallucination unless they are telepathically communicating? But of course, modern science also can't explain telepathy, but they prefer to use one explanation that they're more at ease with against another explanation, which is far more controversial, but effectively, if you listen to what the people tell you they're experiencing, you don't want to go down that route. Okay, so you avoid that by coming up with all these nice examples. Then, if lots of people, it's it's collective, it, it, it's 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 collective hysteria. So we have telepathy amongst thousands of people, like the people who saw the sun spin in the sky at Fatima, you know, and suddenly that's then explained. It's not, not explained at all. They're not explaining anything. I call it idiomatic science. Idiopath, sorry, uh, idiopathic science. 
idiot so if somebody diagnoses that you have idiopathic epilepsy you think that they they've they know what it is idiopathic means we haven't got a bloody clue and this is what they do they haven't got a clue they're not at first base on these things so they just dismiss them because they don't fit in with the paradigm so for me when people have alien encounters they are obviously perceiving something that for them is real and this is where the question arises because over the years i have developed something uh, in my book um uh the hidden universe i present what i call um the egregorial hypothesis of ufo encounters and what i'm arguing is that ufo encounters and encounters with beings are far more complex and far more interesting than the nuts and bolts approach that the americans take towards ufos i'm in the jacques valley school uh, of, of ufology in i believe that there is a direct relationship between us and whatever the entities are whatever the beings are i argue for instance that the way in which they culturally track the way in which you know we had the airships uh, flap in the uh, 1890s in america they were then identifying themselves as being germans they were they were human beings and they were in airships and it's because the people at the time the science of the time could understand airships we then move through and we have the foo fighters in the second world war and everything and then we move into the space age and suddenly they then morph themselves into becoming aliens because of course initially we had the whole nordic space brothers bit in the 1950s and of course that then morphed into particularly after whitley street whitley streber's encounters and communion we then have the greys so clearly there is there is something here that's culturally tracking it's something that we we co-create but my argument is we don't co-create these things they're like tulpas we anticipate them and they use our anticipation to come through and I'm working very closely at the moment with a group of researchers at the University of Sussex and Imperial College in London who are doing research into dimethyltryptamine within the brain and particularly any form of entheogens. And there was a fascinating experiment done um, two years ago, the University of Sussex. And what they did was they, they had individuals take psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, and they monitored their brains as the individual went into hallucinatory states. They monitored their brains to see what brain activity was taking place. They were working under the assumption that what would happen is they'd find that the brain would link up in some way, that different parts of the brain would link up and all parts of the brain would light up. And that's what was creating the hallucinations. Much to their surprise, they found that psilocybin and by implication, other entheogens like dimethyltryptamine actually switch the brain off. They switch brains, parts off of the brain to stop the brain going back to being what uh, going what aldous huxley argued the brain is attenuator so these substances stop the brain from stopping the greater information field coming in and as soon as the greater information from field comes in what do we start perceiving machine elves entities these are there they're there all the time we know they're there through history we know from the writings of um various people over the years the fae the fairies the the little people they've always been there it's just they choose to disguise themselves in whatever way that is acceptable to us in one way or another yeah that that's uh that that's fascinating stuff and we'll come back to the the dmt thing um in a little bit but just going back to the egregorials thing would you say that 
when people are seeing UFOs and, and entities and things like that, that these things exist already in some other realm sort of irrespective of whether they're being observed like if we relate it to the you know like the double slit experiment do these Mm. entities exist merely as a possibility until an observer attempts and shows intention to observe them or do they sort of exist independently of that just going about the business and then they've sort of brought into our observable reality by that intention to observe them if that mm. makes sense that, that's a very good analogy using the twin slit experiment as an analogy for that and the idea with the twin slit experiment is that uh, effectively um, reality or um, subatomic particles exist as a probability wave until they are measured or observed Uh, Now, let's just think a second when we mean by a probability wave. A probability wave is non-physical. It doesn't have any physical existence. It's not like a light wave as such. But of course, we get to light waves and we get wave-particle dualities. We go down another track there. But effectively, when Max Born came up with his statistical model, it's a statistical wave. So it's basically a mental construct. It's a statistical wave of whether you will find a subatomic particle in a particular location or another location. So here we then have something quite interesting that there's some kind of feedback mechanism going on between the act of observation or the act of interpretation by a conscious mind and an entity. Now, this is a fascinating question and something I've wrestled with for many, many years, that when individuals, again, using the analogy of DMT entities, uh, one of of my um, associates um, is one of the volunteers who was involved in the Imperial College research when they were intravenously taking DMT. And when they take DMT, they then go into an altered state of consciousness. They go into something called the DMT cage. And when Carl was describing to me what happened to him, I mean, Carl is an academic, you know, he's a university university lecturer, bright character. And what he said was the first time he went into the DMT cage, he finds himself in this location. And he said, I'm floating in this kind of space And he said, I'm surrounded by the only thing I describe is like a cage. It's as if I'm in some kind of cage. And he said, as I'm there, this entity comes over and prods me through the cage and prods me and says, you shouldn't be doing it this way. This is not the way you should do it. And he said it receded back into the mist. He then comes down, comes to, and two weeks later, he's back in the the, um, the, uh, um, experimental room, takes the DMT, goes back. He's in the same location. The same creature comes over and says the same thing and says, I told you last time, this is not the way you should do it. Now, as Carl said to me, he said, if that was a figment of my imagination, if that was something I was creating from my imagination, why was it telling me things I didn't want to hear? But more importantly, the very weirdness that it recognized him and referenced something earlier. So in answer to your question, this is interesting because that suggests that that entity had been existing between the two times and had been thinking about this and thinking, you know, that weird human being's gonna come back. I must tell him next time, if he does come back, to not do it again. Now that to me had massive implications, suggesting self-motivation in part of the, the entity, but also an independence in time and space. Now your point is a valid one. Do we, if we create these entities, if they are egregores, if they are things that we are bringing into existence, what do they do when we don't bring them into existence? Well, of course, there are various factors here. We know in terms of space-time. We know in terms of that we exist within uh, the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time. 
But there are dimensions outside of those. Um, I'll use an example of how spatial geometry works. What you do is you have a point. So imagine a point. Then you extend that point at a right angle to itself and you get a line. That's the first dimension. Then you go at right angles from both of the lines and you get a square, which is two dimensions. Then from each of the corners, you draw out again at 90 degrees and you end up with a square. And that's the three dimensions of space that we exist within. Then if you extend out again, you get something called a tesseract, which is a hypercube or a, hyper, a hypercube. And a tesseract is something that exists in space time. It also exists in the fourth dimension of space. And it's something we can vaguely visualize, but we can never visualize within our three dimensions of reality, but it's still there. And again, I give an example here, one of the best examples I've ever seen of hyperspace and, and tesseract space was the tesseract sequence in the movie Interstellar. Do you remember the character all through the film? He's living in outside of space time and he's trying to communicate with his daughter who's in the three dimensions of space. And he's pushing books out of a bookcase and she thinks it's a poltergeist. Now, do you remember, he sees that at the end of the movie, he sees her world from outside of that world. And you see her life in, 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 in five dimensions from five dimensional space, which means she's everywhere at the same time. Our whole life is happening in an instant. So her 50 years of life is instantaneous as far as the, witness, the person from the fifth dimension goes. Now, if these entities exist in the fifth dimension, of fifth dimension, effectively, they come in and out of time as far as we're concerned. They, have, they don't necessarily need to have existence outside of the time A to time B where Carl had the two events. Because from the, the point of view of the entity in, in, in the fifth dimension, it's instantaneous. And I used again an example here of how weird time is. And it's so important. We perceive by effectively electromagnetic radiation, light, light particles, photons bouncing off objects around us. And when they bounce off, what they effectively do is the light hits a red dress, for instance. The light, the, the, all of the spectrum, with the exception of the red part of the spectrum, is, is, is absorbed by the red surface. But the red part of the spectrum bounces back and a photon technically carries the message of that red color into your retina and into your visual cortex at the back where you then see red. But this red is nowhere. Red is nowhere. Red does not exist out there. No colors exist out there. They, they are literally what's called a qualia. And this is, again, science. This is not nonsense. This is science. So the question then is, but photons themselves, photons are point particles, as I mentioned earlier, on, which means that they have no extension in space. However much you reduce zoom into a point particle, it will always ever be a point. It has zero mass and no extension in space. Now, that's weird because it's photons that help us see. But what is weirder again, is that photons can only ever travel at the speed of light. And this is important because it means from the point of view of a photon, there is no time. So every photon that is hitting your eye, as far from the photons point of view of time, it's the same as when it left the sun. 
And even weirder then, if you're looking at a photon, if you have a powerful telescope and you're looking at a photon of, say, a quasar, the photon, from the point of view of the photons there, the quasar exists in the same time scale as you do, in the same instant, even though that quasar existed seven, six, five, six billion years ago and has not existed for billions of years. It no longer exists, but from the point of view of the photon, it still exists. Now, this is profoundly important because it means that there is a reality outside of this reality, which is timeless. There's a reality out of this time that is created out of different substances. You know, what? when we talk about these entities, what are they created by? There is uh, an associate of mine called Paulino, who is a researcher, ex-Roman Catholic priest. It's amazing. And he, he's now a, a researcher. Him and his mates run around the New England countryside experimenting. And he argues, he believes that ent these entities, and they're all the same, all the same, the, the, from um, the gin to everything, they're all the same entities. They're made out of plasma. They're plasma beings. And um, again, and people like, is it Carl Budden? There's various other writers in ufology that have argued something similar. But he again does the science, and I attempt to do the science here of exactly what they're made of. What are they? So they're made of something which is, which is another form of matter, because we know that you know plasma really can exist on Earth, but it's very, very strange, whereas the sun is plasma. So these entities are made of something different and exist in a different time scale to us. So to understand their motivations when they're living in this way is impossible to say. But one caveat I will put on here, which, which is something um, has fascinated me for years, and I talked about this at the massive, the biggest UFO conference in the world, break, uh, the um, Contact in the Desert, which I spoke at last year. And I'm delighted to say I was the first person they invited back this year. So obviously what I said went down very, very well. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be there for the whole four days. I'm doing four events over four days out in the desert in California. But the idea is that, uh, where was I going with that? Yeah, with uh, I met a lot of people there that had been abducted or had had encounters with, 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 with beings. Now, the question I've always to ask myself is, what are they doing here? What are they up to when they're abducting people? They've been abducting people since, well, for, 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 for millennia, because effectively we know that the, the, the fairies used to abduct people and take them to Magonia or wherever. So the question is, what are they doing? Because they're doing the same experiments that they've been doing definitely since the 1950s where they abduct people into a spaceship and they stick needles in them. Now, come on, they've been sticking needles in them since the 1950s. Have they not got MRI scanners? Have they not got PET scans anymore? Are they, are they that technologically advanced they can cross the vastness of space but still need to use syringes? They still need to torture people in order to understand how sex works. You know, do we get this? You know, they're experimenting and they're fascinated by people's sex organs. What? They've never seen sex organs? They've been abducting people for years. They know exactly what they are. So they seem to go into these kind of nightmarish scenarios. And I argue why they do this. And it's to do with shamanic traveling. What we're dealing with here is part of human psychology. It is part of our own fears. They manifest 
from our fears. They generate fear in us. Now, if you look back into the, the writings on, on, on shamans, there is something that shamans have to do. It's a shamanic initiation and it involves being taken out of your body or being raised up somewhere else to go somewhere else where you're dismembered, you're tortured. It's part of the trope. You look into all the writings on shaman faith, Eliad onwards, this is a definite trope. So there's definite parallels here between shamanic traveling and UFO abductions. They're, they're elements of the same thing. It's a great game. You know, it's almost the cosmic joker. It's, 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 it's much more fascinating than just simply aliens are crossing the vastness of space because we have to use the logic here. Even if, even if the aliens could travel at the speed of light, it's still so, such a vast distance unless they've got wormholes or something else. And if they've got wormholes, why have they been doing it for so long without actually doing anything? You know, why is it that the aliens always contact Joe Bloggs, who's somewhere in little in, up in Arkansas, where they give him pancakes? You know, these things just make no sense. You know, as Jacques Vallée argues, it makes no sense whatsoever. This is again, you know, the the uh, the passport to Magonia concept. It is very much the writings of people like John Keel. You know, the idea that it's there's much more of a game going on here. You know, we look at the various writings of John Keel. Clearly, there's something greater, and it's a great mystery. And it, this is what fascinates me about it. But it's part of us. It's part of our psychology. But it's also something external to us, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, absolutely. As much sense as it as it can make, being <laughs> such an incredibly you know in depth and, and nuanced thing to consider. But um, what what's really fascinating, and it's what what I like about your work as well, is the the links to the the actual scientific studies and things that have been done. So just to take it back to that for a second about the the studies into DMT, which is I suppose an attempt to study this kind of other realm that exists, you know, outside of our perception. Has, has any, um, like, uh, results and, and the, the kind of results that have been published at this point? Oh, yeah, yeah, they have. Well, funnily enough, um, I'm coming to the end of my 13th book now, and the foreword for that 13th book is going to be written by a guy called um, Pascal Michael, Dr. Pascal Michael, who's one of the, the up-and-coming young researchers into DMT and altered states of consciousness. Um, and it's quite fascinating because um, the work we are doing that he and I are working with and what are the position I'm gonna be taking on the new book. And indeed, um, if anybody's interested, um, I'm doing a live online event this weekend um, with, um, with Tracy Dolan and Richard Dolan, Richard Dolan, the UF, American UFO researcher. Uh, we've got Russell Targ, who many of you may know Russell Targ, Dr. Russell Targ, Professor Russell Targ, was one of the original researchers into remote viewing and, and wrote a series of books on remote viewing. He is the man, he's gonna be involved as well. And we're gonna be doing this live weekend event. And one of the talks I'm gonna be giving, I'm, I'm gonna be giving two things. I'm gonna be giving a live lecture where I'm going to be discussing the links between UFO abductions, out-of-body experiences, and near-death experiences, and the similarities between these. And in my new book, this is one of the themes I'm going to be exploring in greater detail, because the neurological correlates 
of all three seem to be profoundly similar. And you can draw parallels between the UFO phenomenon and the UFO experience and near-death experiences. For example, the amount of times somebody feels that when they're abducted, they are risen up from the ground, like Travis Walton as an example. They're taken into a machine that's hovering above. And then they're in this experimental place or whatever. And the entities relate to them. Again, if you look at the near-death experiences, near-death experience, people feel they're rising up outside of their body. They encounter entities. They encounter things called the being of light. And the being of light talks to them and explains things. I argue that the being of light in near-death experiences, the aliens that people encounter, they're all the same beings. They're all the same. They're all playing the same game. And I argue the evidence for this is quite clear because particularly with near-death experiences, they're very culturally based. I have a whole section in the new book on the cultures, the cultural aspects of near-death experiences. You see what you expect to see, as, you do, as people do with alien encounters. Whatever the social acceptability is of what the aliens will look like is how they present themselves. It's if they're cloaked to look how we expect them to look. The same goes for people when they die and they meet entities when they, they're, they're supposedly in a near-death experience. Because the entities, again, seem to look like what they expect. They might look like dead relatives. They might look like Uncle Sid, who died three or four years ago. They may look like Jesus. They may look like um, one of the, the many Hindu deities. They may look like the Buddha. And each society the entities they encounter in near-death experiences reflect their belief systems. Nobody ever has, a Hindu person will not have a near-death experience and see Jesus. They won't, they just don't, it never happens. So in which case this has got to make people ask questions. It can't really be Jesus. If it is, why is it not appearing to everybody? It doesn't. So clearly we have that, then we have the shamanic encounters, when the shamans go and, and shamanic travel, they encounter beings and entities. People, when they have DMT trips, there are people that when they take ayahuasca, for instance, they meet ayahuasca deities, they meet plants. Of course, because they're expecting plants because that's what the trope is. So they see plants. Now, to me, this suggests that we, that there's something more. And it was fascinating because Pascal, um, interviewed a um, guy called Eben Alexander um, as part of his research. Now, Eben Alexander, to anybody who knows, had probably the most famous near-death experience many years ago when he was seriously ill with meningitis. He is a brain surgeon, and he was a non-believer in all of these things. And he had a profound near-death experience where he actually met he found himself on the wings of a giant um, butterfly and sitting on the wing with him was this beautiful young girl who had the most incredible colored eyes. And he talks to this young woman and then he comes back. He then he survives the ND experience. He comes back and he's talking to his parents when he's coming to. And he turns around to his parents and he says, um, in my in my near death experience, I met this young woman with this incredible eyes. His parents go really quiet. 
he had a sister that died before he was born that they never told him about. And she had these colored eyes. So the question there is, well, the entity there um, seemed to know something he didn't know. So if it was being created from his subconscious, why did it reproduce itself as his sister? Now, I would argue that, um, and we haven't got time here, in, um, I have a hypothesis called cheating the ferryman, but I argue we're all living our lives again and again and again, like Groundhog Day. Um, we live each life differently because it's in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and various other later iterations of that. And I use the science of that, but I argue that we're living in a simulation of our lives or what my associate, Dr. Andrew Gallimore calls an instantation. So we're existing within a virtual reality equivalent of our lives. And each one is different, just like every game you play. When you play a third-person game, it's different every time. So is the lives. But we do have memories of the last time we played the game. And it could be, for instance, with Eben Alexander, that when he last played the game, um, he remembers coming to last time after his near-death experience and being told by his parents about his sister and her coloured eyes. So when he has the near-death experience again, a part of him remembers subconsciously that he did have a sister that had these color eyes, which the entity will then use from his information field to say, right, okay, this is what I'm going to look like. I'll make him feel at ease. Now, the reason for the end of this, this, this particular description here is that um, uh, when Pascal interviewed um, Eben Alexander, it's interesting, Eben Alexander has also had a DMT trip. And he's, he's experienced DMT. So they discuss the similarities between the near-death experience and the DMT experience. And they're virtually identical. There's so many similar tropes there. But the DMT experience is so similar to the alien abduction scenario. People in DMT trips, you know, effectively, when my friend had the, the encounter with the entity that said he shouldn't be doing it in the DMT cage, isn't that similar? He's in this kind of laboratory environment. Isn't this exactly the same as when somebody has an alien abduction? The aliens are the same. They're doing the same game. They're using the same neurological pathways in the brain. They're using the same information fields that we use and playing with us. Now, could it be there are, they are variations on our own future self? You know, if they exist in the fifth dimension outside of space and time, could they be iterations of our own future? Because they've been arguing, you know, time travel. They could be time travelers. Um, and there's strong evidence that that is possible. You know, there's something called the top-down hypothesis of quantum physics by a guy called John Kramer. And John Kramer argues that there's two types of um, information waves. There's retarded waves and advanced waves. And one goes backwards in time and one is going forwards in time. And interestingly enough, the point where they two, the two meet, which is what I argue, Kramer doesn't argue this, I do, when the, the, the waves going backwards in the past and the waves going backwards in the forwards, when they interface, causes a hologram. So holograms work, interference patterns. That's the present moment. The present moment is, is a hologram and it's created by these two waves interfering with each other, causing an interference pattern, which means that that present moment can move forward in time the way we're moving, but it's just as easily could be going backwards in time in which case the aliens or whatever they are could use that information wave to move backwards in time. Now, on top of this, um, again, I go on for hours. I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry to get carried away. But the other thing is as well that um, there's another hypothetical form of time 
called orthogonal time. And orthogonal time was interestingly enough first suggested, as far as I can see, by of all people, Philip K. Dick, the American science fiction writer who I wrote a um, a biography of a few years ago. And orthogonal time, again, is a time at right angles to this time. So, you know, I was using the analogy of the line and the square and the tesseract. It's the same. It's a time. Our time runs linearly, you know, as a line from the future to the past or from the past to the future. But um, there's no reason to say that there couldn't be another time that's running at right angles to that time. In which case, our present moment is their permanent present. And our present moment is always the same moment for them. So in which case, they can dip in and out of this moment as many times as they want. And there's also, and this gets even more interesting, is there's a lot of work being done now on the quantization of time. Because we know space is quantized. We know space is made up of individual bits or quanta. And, and physical physical matter is made of quanta. There is no reason to not believe that time is also quantized. Now, if time is quantized, it means that there's bits of time. There's subatomic, like a subatomic particle. It's quanta of time. Now, if there are quanta of time, it means that time is not a continuum, because this is how they discovered quantum mechanics. They discovered that energy, they thought energy was like a stream. Electricity was like a stream, but they discovered it wasn't. Energy comes in little packets or quanta, and each quanta is different to the next quanta. There's a space between them, for want of a better term. So imagine the argument that space is quant- uh, time is quantized or space is quantized. It means that there's gaps between time. But what can there be between two bits of time that exists outside of time? Indeed, what can there be between two bits of space, because space and time are the same thing. Space-time, Einstein physics, space-time is the same thing. So space is quantized. So what's between the gaps, between the bits of space? Then things start to get really weird. And is that where these entities can come through? Orthogonal time? There are so many things now, so many scientific options available to us to start moving the whole debate forward. Instead of going on and giving the same examples time and time again, drives me crazy when I write about UFOs, when I write about near-death experiences, alien encounters, it gets boring. All it is is anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. Nobody's trying to explain. I try to explain. You read my books, you know, I'll give you examples, but I'm not doing that just to say, oh, here's another person from somewhere else that met an alien. It's pointless. It's not achieving anything. All it's doing is it's giving us anecdotal information, but we need to use the anecdotal information and put it in with the science without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So there's so many nut jobs out there who come up with the craziest ideas and they get listened to. And it's people like myself and my associates because we're not sensationalist. We're not making claims that we can't support. There is nothing I have said here I cannot support scientifically or hypothetically, hypothetical science or theoretical science. There is nothing I say. I never turn around and say I'm channeling it from the planet Tharg. I never make out an alien told me this. I never turn around and say that, you know, I'm talking to spirits. But people believe these idiots, and these idiots rip them off time and time and time again. This is what we've got to get rid of the nut jobs. We've got to get rid 
of the people that dis bring discredit to the things we're trying to do. You know, the, the shape-shifting lizards and all this nonsense. But then again, you know, if the science works, you know, the science works. If there are shape-shifting lizards out there, you know, what I've just been presenting is a model, is a model. Yeah, I, I always like the uh, the expression, follow the data where, wherever it leads. You know, certainly the approach taken by the RSAP folks with Lukatsky and that kind of thing, despite some of the criticism they get for pursuing those kind of, you know, what people might see as weird directions. But I'm certainly glad you follow the data wherever it leads. And, and I'm very glad that you're not channeling information from the planet Zorg as well. But I think what what's out of what's outside of our perceivable reality surely is kind of one of the, the biggest questions of of our time i suppose not just our time but the whole of humanity's time mm -hmm. in existence you know it, it is that big question isn't it and those are the questions that you tackle with your work really some of well, these it's the only thing the only thing we know with absolute certitude is that i am something perceiving something that's all i know you know that i cannot i cannot know anything else other than i am and i know it's it's descartes you know i think therefore i am and i know that people will dismiss that and say cartesian dualism is a load of nonsense but a moment's reflection will tell you well actually it's not you know the solipsistic viewpoint is the only rational logical conclusion you can come to you're something perceiving something um, and we don't even know what that something is that's doing the perceiving, because if you go into certain meditative states, you go inside yourself and there's nothing there. We are a collection of um, what we've experienced. We build up this ego, this personality, which is based upon the things that have happened to us. And we give ourselves a name. It's labeling again. You know, I'm Tony. Therefore, Tony has this continuation through time. But I don't know I've got continuation through time. All I, can, all I exist in is the continual present, this ongoing now that goes from now to now to now. And that's all I ever perceive. The past has gone. It might not as well as not existed because it only exists in my memory. And the future is anticipation and is yet to happen. So that all that exists is this tiny sliver of something between the endlessness of the past and the potentiality of the future, both of which don't technically exist until we experience them. And I saw something recently which blew my mind, was the idea of the universe in time. You know, the Big Bang takes place. And if it's, if it's, it's continually expanding, what's going to happen is eventually all the stars are going to die out, all the black holes are going to suck things in, and the universe is going to heat death and the universe will be in that state of heat death for an um, unbelievable amount of time so in fact out in the outside looking again down from the, the the fifth dimension the universe literally was a kind of a little flash right at the start you know within a billion billion billionth of a second of a trillion trillion years but the trillion trillion years there'll be nothing nothing at all doesn't that make your brain explode what the hell is the point but then again you've got to argue well why should there be a point in the first place it's only because we feel there should be a reason for things but then you have to ask the question well why does anything exist rather than nothing because surely the most efficient state would be a state of total entropy which would be nothing 
And again, again, you know, something that I think about a lot is, of course, time is in fact entropy. When we talk about time, the, you know, time as, as, as a construct is only in the brain. You know, we, we, we feel, sense time, but the, time is not out there. What time is out there in science, scientific terms is entropy. It's the change from a state of extreme order to disorder. So, you know, you take an egg, which is an egg, and you drop it on the floor. When the egg you've got in your hand is in a state of high entropy, low entropy, when you drop it into the floor, it's smashed. It's in a state of greater entropy. So all that's happening is that you're the, the universe from the great order of the singularity before the Big Bang, where everything was ordered and effectively nothing, suddenly everything expands out from a nothingness. And as I've always argued here, I'm getting carried away, but I've always argued here, and I argue with scientists about this, if the speed of light and photons can only travel at the speed of light, what happened in the first billion, well, assuming the light of the, the Big Bang? Because how does a photon get from a standing position, i.e. no motion, to the speed of light instantaneously? Because it can only ever travel at the speed of light. It can't accelerate to the speed of light. So how did those first photons come into existence? How did they get? Because they would have been in the first, first second, 186,000 miles out. But they wouldn't have been in the intervening space. They wouldn't have crossed the intervening space. But of course, maybe space was not, did not exist in the same way. So all these things, you know, it makes you feel very nihilistic. It makes you feel very, very humble but also makes you feel, wow, there's much more to this than we think. You know, the latest research is saying it's all mathematical. It's all, it's all data. It's all binary. It's all code. In fact, there's a guy called um, Craig Hogan, the Perimeter Institute in um, Ontario, and they're looking for the pixelation of space. It's pixelated. And again, if anybody is really interested in it, they should read a fascinating book called Our Mathematical Universe by Professor Max Tegmark, who's at the University of Princeton. And Tegmark really, really shows just how everything is mathematical, how every, everything is data. And if everything is data, what does that tell us about reality? It tells us it's an instantation. It's made of information. There isn't anything but information. Yeah, some, some pretty big concepts interesting to, to explore. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, ancient cultures were perhaps arguably more in touch with with these kind of questions in some ways and certainly like open to the exploration of of what's outside of our reality and sort of saw it as sacred you know like exploring mm. these these other realms whereas we've we've perhaps stigmatized it and turned that exploration of, of consciousness and, and what else is out there in, into almost a taboo you know certainly in terms of the substances that you would use to um you know to potentially explore those realms like you were saying dmt psilocybin and things like that and and even even things like you know meditative states as well to get the 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 mind in, into a certain way of being able to actually explore those realms is, is kind of a niche thing and, and almost seen as a bit of a, a hippie practice kind of thing. Whereas I think it was front and center with a lot of ancient, ancient cultures. Do you, do you think perhaps the, the ancients were more in tune with, with some elements of reality that we've perhaps closed ourselves off from? Well, I think for instance, we, um, we, we, we always, all civilizations look back at the past and assume that they are the pinnacle 
um, of, of progress. Um, now, I know as a historian that the use of language, for instance, and the accuracy of the use of language was far greater hundreds of years ago than it is now. You know, our, our, we, we use a very restricted language code now. You just, you know, the words used by Shakespeare, the, word used by the vic words used by the Victorian writers. So we can extrapolate that back into the past. And we have to realize that although these earlier cultures may not have had the technology we've got, their brains were exactly the same as ours. So their ability to rationalize effectively was the same. And they would be rationalizing, taking into account the information they are given. Most human beings react to the world around them by what they can perceive. This is why, although it's a lot of this um, flat earth stuff is nonsense, but the one thing I don't do is dismiss the flat earthers because they are actually applying empirical science. They believe the world is flat because their senses tell them that it seems to be flat. It isn't, and we know science and mathematics tells us that. But you can see their point of view because that's what empirically they see and they understand. And the reason why earlier civilizations had different worldviews was purely and simply because the information that was available to them. But there must be other sources of information that that, that they would know about that we wouldn't be necessarily be aware of. I've used the analogy in a number of interviews that, for instance, if, um, I don't know, Edison or some of the great scientists of the 19th century found um, a Blu-ray disc, they wouldn't have a clue what it was. They would think it might be a mirror. They might think it's something to do with a reflecting surface, maybe but they would have no way of understanding how much information is encoded within that because they didn't have the, they didn't have the conceptual abilities to realize okay so there could be things that we find in ancient cultures that are encoded information but we don't know how to get that information out so and it's extreme chauvinistic arrogance to assume that the, the science that we have discovered now has not been discovered before. Human beings have been human beings for millions of years. There is a whole period, massive period of human history that we have no idea what happened because there's no written words to describe what was going on. But it doesn't mean that those civilizations might have been keeping information. It's just that they didn't use the written word. So therefore, we, we don't have the narrative of what happened to them. I use again an example, you know, for instance, the mysterious civilization of the Minoans on Crete and in, in, um, in uh, Southern Greece and the Greek islands. The Minoans, there were two scripts that the Minoans used to write, Linear A and Linear B. One of them, have been, one of them has been translated by a guy called Michael Ventris, but the other linear form hasn't. We don't know what the messages are being said. We don't know what these things are telling us. And this is written word. So it's a similar technology to ourselves in terms of writing, but there might be other technologies that we don't know about. So in which case we, we, can, we, we, we need to, as anthropologists try to do now, you know, they try to not go there with their values, but just be open to the values of the culture you're dealing with. That's in present day anthropology. But if you're doing historical anthropology, you should do the same. 
You should just approach it and say, well, what's their worldview like? What was their world like? How did they think? And what was their world like? You know, there is a lot of mysteries about Egypt. I'm not one of these guys that gets really carried away with it all. But in one of my books, I discuss in great detail the concept of, of, of substances like Kaikion and Soma, which were mind-altering substances that the, the Mesopotamians had, the, uh, the, Zoro, the, the people that were before the Zoroastrians, uh, the Indus culture. All these people carried their uh, substances that were mind-altering, that allowed them to perceive alternate realities. Now somebody will turn around and say, oh, you know, it's just hallucinations, you know, that you take a drug and you see things. Well, yeah, but uh, all you do is you look out your eyes and listen through your ears and your brain creates something internally. Your brain is creating the same thing using the same processes when you take hallucinogenics to the way it's doing why it's processing the external world. And people miss this. They're all technically hallucinations. Just the hallucinations are being facilitated by different things. And it's so important. So when we say that there's consensual reality out there, the only reason we believe that consensual reality is out there is consistent because you and I both believe, both you and I and say, oh, look, there's a red ball dancing, bouncing down the road. And you'll say, yeah, I can see that red ball. And it's because we both agree that we agree that that's external to us. But I know of people who have consensual and shared out-of-body experiences where they go into an out-of-body state and they will see something in the out-of-body state and they will come back and they will have seen the same thing. So what's happening there? That tells us that whatever these altered states that people go to in out-of-body experiences or in lucid dreaming are still real because the consensual argument is overcome by saying the fact that people have shared them. So this tells us that the realities we go to in these places are just as real. The question is just what is reality? And again, you know, Donald Hoffman, who's real flavor of the month at the moment, uh, wrote a book a few years ago, uh, two or three years ago, called What is Reality? Again, he's a physicist and he's really like me. He's blasting, he's blasting through. He's going, let's just not take this because this is received wisdom. Let's blast through and look at it deeper. Let's drill deeper into this. And he's arguing the same as I'm arguing. Everything is an hallucination. And hallucination is just something that is perceived by your brain. So in which case, all these things are up for debate and up for discussion. And I think as soon as we break out of this confined materialist reductionist worldview, not that I'm condemning the materialist worldview, you know, without materialist reductionism, we wouldn't be doing this. We couldn't do this. The technology we have is all through material reductionism, i.e. how do you find something works? you materially reduce it. You take it apart to look at its component parts to see how it works, and then you put it together again. That's how you should do things. But you can't do that with the mind. You can't do that with consciousness. You can take the brain apart to the nth degree. You will never find consciousness. Consciousness just seems to happen in the brain. It's what they call an epiphenomenon. And again, the scientists will just argue, well, you know, that it's just the way in which the, the neurons work together. And there's a certain point where consciousness just appears. And I ask in my books, from where? Where does this consciousness appear from? Does it appear at the addition of one electron? One new neurotransmitter? 
one quark. But even if it's just the addition of one quark, how does that then facilitate the self-identity of Frank and Tony? You know, that you are just literally an illusion. You are fooling yourself into thinking you are conscious. There's people called eliminative materialists, and this is what they believe. You're fooling yourself into believing you're conscious. You're not really. You're being fooled. And as I've argued, to, you know, argued against people like Daniel Dennett and the Churchlands, to fool something, that something has to be self-aware. You can't fool a stone into believing anything. You can only fool something who's self-reflective and is aware of itself sufficiently enough to be fooled. And they miss that point. I find it extraordinary. All the people that support all this position, they completely miss that point. You know, and, the, and I, it drives me crazy. You know, there's me, this little guy here that's me pointing all these things out and everybody's like, oh, just go away. You don't know what you're talking about. They never, never engage with me though. They never ever engage with me, strangely enough. Um, you know, so it's what is, you know, what is Frank? You know, do, do you know there's a, there's a famous um, novel, novel called Let's Be Frank? Do you know that? No. <laughs> oh, do you not know Let's Be Frank? I can't remember who wrote it now. Um, and it's, it's a guy called Frank, and it's a science fiction story from the 60s. And he has a child, a, a son. And when the son's born, he realizes he's looking out of his son's eyes and he can see him and his son. And he realizes he is his son as well. And then he has another child and he realizes all the children are Frank. And then as time goes on, everybody's Frank. And of course, this is the central concept of something I've written about many, many times called pandeism. We are one singular consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. We are all technically Frank. And Frank is what, for a better word, I call the Godemon. Um, the collective unconscious or the, the, uh, the super ego, the um, collective unconscious. We are all, any of the Bill Hicks made this famous statement, you know, we're all one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. And I believe that makes sense. So then the argument is, is even the aliens? Are the aliens all just part of us? Are we all just having this collective hallucination? All of us. And we're all just one person. And as the, the, the Vendantists believe, you know, that the universe will end when Brahman wakes up. Because, of course, Brahman is everything. Well, there you have it, folks. We are all frank. Um, and I think um, <laughs> that, that's, that's quite an apt moment uh, because we've, we've come to the end of, of our allotted time. But uh, honestly, I could, I, I could go on all day, really. Uh, but obviously, we, we, we have other things to do as well. So, uh, But I'd love to get you back on at some stage if, if you'd yeah, like to. Yeah, absolutely, um, sure. That, that'd be a brilliant to, to have you back on again and, and thanks for your time today a real treat and as i say if, if folks have enjoyed this and if you're listening here at the end of the episode you you clearly have enjoyed it and i would highly recommend going uh, checking out some of anthony's other work yeah uh, check out check out on check me out on facebook check me out my website is anthonypeak.com chase me out on facebook instagram i'm on instagram as well and try and get along to this event on on on, on saturday and sunday it's going to be really cool it's going to be really fantastic and it's it's open discussion as well you know it's not just us talking to you you'll be able to interface with us as well it's going to be really exciting but frank thanks for this it's been brilliant really enjoyed it thanks very much it's been a real pleasure thank you
UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.